Hello and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast episode 19 with the dynamic duo Ian Lobb <laughs> and Seb Lee Delisle. Hello. Dynamic duo, I like it. But um, you know we're both going to want to be Batman. Were they the Were they the dynamic duo? Were they? Weren't they? Batman I, and Robin. Yeah, I thought it just meant any two people, but okay. <laughs> it's almost February. Oh no! It's been ages, Ian. We're so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. We haven't got so. many listeners. Only a hundred and ninety-six thousand. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, we just added up every download ever that has ever happened from our podcast. And it's, what is it, 196,900 and something. It's almost 197,000. Okay, that's cool. And the highest, episode one? Yeah, still the first one. Episode one has 17,000, 17,800 and something. They can't all be listening, surely. No. I mean, some of that is just people who subscribe in iTunes, because I think it will get you episode one. It'll just download it anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've stuck with it, but... The Flashageddon podcast, episode 16. That was the second most popular. Yeah, and that's a really recent one, so that hasn't even had a lot of time to kind of brew up. I guess a lot of people care about Flash, huh? Yeah, or, or they just like trolling, they just like to hear. <laughs> yeah. It's true, though. It's like the internet rewards all the wrong behaviour. Like, every time I do something trolly, I always get, you know, I always pick up, a, you know, a few dozen more Twitter followers and stuff. And then if you're just, like, a good boy and do everything right and be nice, then no one cares. There's there's kind of a few web designers who make a point of being super polite and gentlemanly right. on the internet. Like, John Tan is one of them. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a really, really well-known designer and a really nice guy. I've got to know him over a uh, couple of conferences recently. Right. Uh, and he always insists on being an absolute gentleman on Twitter, which is, of course, quite admirable, but also kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. John. Obviously, you're a lovely guy. <laughs> but sometimes you, I'm just like, oh, stop being so nice. Oh, can't you just be a bit a, a bit of a dick? Can't you just a little? And he's not. He's always like, oh, here's this really great thing I found. I really love this guy. <laughs> the thing is, though, that at the moment, there's so much to be opinionated about. Yeah. I find it impossible not to be. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? It's at times of change, you see, where you have to, like, not pick a side, but p- at least ha- pick a decide what you think, right? Yeah. We'll come back to this in a minute because I've got some stuff to say about this. But we should say what's coming up on the show today. Okay, so we're going to tell you what we've been up to and we're going to talk about the latest news in terms of all the technologies you care about, which is HTML, Flash, Unity 3D, and also... I don't know if we'll have time for all of those. um, I think I've got something to say on each of those ones, so... We've only got half an hour, don't forget, because we have also a very special interview with author and creative coder Josh Noble. Cool. Yeah, that's a good interview as well. He's not someone that was on my radar. Yeah, I liked the interview and it was good. He seems like he's had quite a kind of diverse career so far and it's a really interesting one, actually. Yeah, you'll hear all about that later, his work in creative coding. Like, And he's written a book all about creative code and he talks a bit about that i think it's the only book really in english about open frameworks as well so that's cool so yeah back to trolling i had an interesting week right (laughs) well you know creativejs.com right well i posted about um cut the rope yeah you see the html5 cut the rope a couple of weeks ago um pretty well executed javascript version sponsored by microsoft because it's kind of, well, I'm not sure it's necessarily optimized for IE, but um, because it was paid for by Microsoft, they had to do all loads of 
cheesy marketing stuff about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so they had a video which was like, yeah, why not just download Internet Explorer? And it was just a bit cheesy. So I took the, the mickey out of them for that on a on a post, which I thought was quite amusing. <laughs> I totally neglected to mention that it was actually quite a good, um, good <laughs> executed project, yeah. game. Pretty well done. Um, but the other thing they did was that they've locked certain levels to IE and I felt like that deserved a little bit of, of Mickey taking as well um, because it's totally you know these fake limitations when the, oh anyway don't get me started on that because the, the next week or in fact sort of that same day a couple of um, sites I think might have been TechCrunch actually or it was a couple of tech sites picked up on the fact that it needed Flash to play the audio mm. so I thought well that's quite an interesting story and then they responded to that with a really good post actually you should check it out I've read it basically ex- explaining what's like the issues are with with HTML5 audio there's still a few little hiccups and stuff that you have to work around so I thought you know what that's cool that's fair I'm going to write a post about how sure why not why don't you fall back to Flash for audio if it's not working yet Honestly, the torrent of abuse that I got, well, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but it's like this time it was from Flash people. Right. And I'm like, guys, I'm being reasonable here. <laughs> and you're still like really super angry. I don't, I didn't really read it all, all, your, all the comments, but isn't the point, I guess, that like if you need Flash anyway, you might as well have just done it in Flash? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's a really good point, but it's not so much using Flash as falling back to Flash, you know. So, except, right, except course. when it does it on every browser but one. Yeah, well, that was a bit... Which one's the fallback, you see, at that yeah, point? Yeah, well, that, that was a bit of a mistake, but I guess that's, you know, part of the story is that Flash is enabling us to move forward with these technologies, yeah, where we wouldn't be able to normally. Yeah, I mean, and that is true of the web in general. If you think about YouTube, it's not a Flash site, is it? Yeah. It's a website. It's got, it uses Flash for one specific thing, which is playing videos. Yeah. You know, Flash is, you know, YouTube has never been a Flash website, mm-hmm. but it's always used Flash to fill in the thing that you can't do in the browser. Yeah, totally. And that is what Flash is for, in my view. It's yeah. like, it's that missing bit of thing that goes where you need to on websites, you know, yeah. that, that are st- still made the way websites are always made. But Anyway, I've, yeah. I've got my rant over with now. What, what <laughs> How have you been? Are you all right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been really good. Um, yeah, I've been, uh, been working up in London, so that's been interesting. With your last clients? Yeah, a little reminder of what life's like for um you know the rest of the population who don't uh work out of an office in their house and kind of do whatever they want you know do whatever they want <laughs> yeah um so that's interesting but it's been good fun and like yeah the games come together quite well that i'm making so, so tell me what you're doing um i can't really talk about it but it's a game i'm making a game for a, and it's a, a flash for game. an ad agency in london yeah and it's a flash game are you are you work are you programming it all by yourself yeah working with a, an illustrator who's done all the art and animations and just sticking it all together and building the, the gameplay and it's yeah it's come together really well actually and like yeah it's annoying that i can't talk about it but there you go it's one of those things when's it going to be released um i don't know <laughs> uh i think i've only got one more week on it so it's basically finished now so will you be able to talk about it once it's released N- no <laughs> The thing that I think is interesting to talk about is that um, they're doing an iPad version yeah. or, or and a mobile version. And basically what they're doing is they're just getting a team to copy my work, yeah. which I think is an interesting strategy. It's not the worst strategy at all. Like I wrote on Twitter like best because it was like get me to get me to build the game and then copy what I've done. It's like best strategy ever. Right. Yeah. But people thought I was sarcastic. But it's like I wasn't being sarcastic. I think like that way you've got a game that works on the web and a game that works on mobile. And yeah. OK, it's maybe not the most efficient way of doing it, but then if you've got like plenty of money like that's that's an example where you're actually making a game in 
Flash and they're using your skills as a game maker to, to copy it. And it actually is, you know, it's kind of a bit fiddlier to get these things working in iOS as well, isn't it? So it's probably not a bad idea. Yeah. It's probably going to be a lot quicker to make the prototype in Flash. I've heard from multiple people, actually, from uh, Matt Ricks, who built Trainyard, and uh, Matt Groves, uh, my friend who's got an upcoming iPhone game, which I've seen, which is really, really amazing. And both of them built their prototypes in Flash mm. to kind of get the gameplay working because they could do it so quick and then yeah. and then went to Cocos 2D to actually build it for the phone. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's only going to be the case if you're a Flash programmer, <laughs> right, isn't it? So yeah. If you've only ever worked with iOS, then you might not want to prototype it in Flash, but <laughs> if no. you're a Flash coders... But once you do know Flash, it, it is the kind of sketch pad. It's a good sketch pad for ideas. Yeah. I mean, you could do the same thing with processing yeah. or any other kind of technology that's built to, for rapid development, I guess. Yeah, I've seen I've seen prototypes in processing before. I've also seen um, like there was a huge iOS project that I'm not allowed to talk about that I was involved in a year or two back, and uh, <laughs> they had some big kind of design agency come up with all these documents and documents about style guides and what happens when and what it looks like, and they they made a load of prototypes in Flash, you know, just to show how the thumbnails scrolled and all these other kind of transitions. And I just, mm. I was just at New Adventures Conference, which is a quite a cool web design conference in Nottingham. I really enjoyed it, actually. It's uh, a lot more down to earth and kind of friendly than some web conferences, I guess. Right. Um, but Dan Moore was there. Dan's a great guy. But he was explaining how, as a, a designer, he'll prototype all the animations and the transitions in Flash. And then he'll make QuickTime movies out of them. Right. And then he'll give them to the programmers so that they can, like, literally scroll through it frame by frame to see how it animates. I mean, I personally think that programmers, that, like, creative programmers are usually responsible for that side of it and those decisions. But I guess if you are an artist, artist, designer, animator, then I can't think of a better way to make sure the programmers don't screw it up. So he literally makes linear movies. Yeah. That's that's incredible, actually. But why not? Like, you know, whatever process works. I think most of the targets in his case are like HTML websites, so there isn't really a good tool that can easily and quickly mock those things up, right? So You've got, um like, Penna, there's a Penna easing plugin for jQuery, isn't there, that gets you all of the Penna, Robert Penna equations. Yeah. There's a, I mean, those Penna equations are there's a um, JavaScript library that's ported them as well. I think it's JTweener or JTween, one of them, that's that's all of those um, algorithms if you need them. Is that different to the jQuery one? I don't know, actually. You do you do a lot of JavaScript without using jQuery, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Just... And for me, like, for me, like, modern JavaScript is jQuery. Like, that's the thing that coming back to JavaScript after a very long absence... Yeah. As, that's the thing that's made it like okay for me to use. I like the I like that you can be very succinct. Yeah. Um, it really feels like because I find some bits of action script are very verbose, like you know where you go add event listener and then you need to make a function. And even though action scripts, I think in general is quite you know expressive language. Yeah. I find expressive. There are some things where you know you go add event listener and then you've got to make another function called event listener and blah. Yeah. Whereas jQuery is one of these ones where it's really like this thing dot click put the function as a as an anonymous function in brackets. And it's really like, I find it really expressive and really kind of quick to just do that. Yeah, I mean, I have very mixed feelings about jQuery. I think on one hand, it's brilliant that it exists. And I think it's it's kind of like the new Flash in a lot of ways. It, it really is, yeah. It's the thing that makes it possible to make more like interesting content, I think. Yeah, and, and John Resig, who I met briefly this year, really nice guy is obviously a very smart guy and I think there's a lot of clever stuff in it I mean I personally 
I, I, for the reasons that you say you like it, it makes me a bit uncomfortable with it. I find it quite <laughs> hard to read and perhaps a bit... Really? Yeah, a little bit. I guess I'm just not really used to it. And I do think also that because a lot of it, I mean, it's not all of it, right? There's, there's some of it that's just meant to make things a bit easier, but a lot of it is about getting the backwards compatibility across browsers working. So I do sort of think that, you know, as browsers kind of evolve, it becomes less and less required, right? In the sort of the same way as... Flash is getting less and less required. So I don't know, I think I'm a little bit, you know, I sort of think, think a bit past it and I quite like doing raw JavaScript. I know, I know, I've noticed that, but there was, I read a good tweet that I think you either wrote or retweeted about, like, if you're using jQuery just to select a canvas element, yeah. then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, and you see that quite a lot with, um, with like, these little canvas experiments. But then why, why not? You've got, you know, some people use jQuery as part of their development thing. Yeah. It does save you a few keystrokes to write dollar sign and then the element rather than uh, get was it get element by ID. Yeah. I mean it's it's just it, it's like saves like what ten keystrokes, but but right, it's like an, but, a, whatever it is sixty k library. <laughs> um, I don't in fact sure. I don't really know what size it is at all, so I might just be yeah. making that up. But I mean, if you use the Google one, it's cached anyway. So yeah, okay. I mean, I still think though that. If your browser doesn't support get element by ID, then it doesn't support Canvas. So yeah, but it's not just about support. That's I don't see that as what jQuery's for. It's about like a nicer API to work with. Things like setting .html instead of .inner HTML, and so things yeah. like selecting all of your whatever at once. Yeah. Right. Because the point of jQuery originally is that it's for selecting elements on the page, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's a big part of it, I think. You can select all the things with a certain class yeah. and then do the same thing to them. And that just makes your whole process of working with the DOM a lot quicker, I think. It's definitely saved me a lot of headaches. I, I think that's, the, you know, that's exactly what it's for, isn't it? If you've got an HTML page with lots of stuff on it and you just want to traverse it really easily, I still think that's probably the easiest way to do it, right? I mean, I guess for yeah. the sort of projects that I do, which are more kind of interactive creative projects in javascript yeah. and there's usually just like a canvas element or yeah. i'm just moving yeah well it's obviously it's not going to help you with the canvas element is it because it hasn't got anything for that but... or webgl or just moving dom elements around that i made you know then it's like oh yeah but it can help you move dom elements dom elements around it's a lot easier you just do your element.css and then you put in your top and left in in the object and that saved you quite a lot of code well not really because if i want to move a dom element around i just adjust its its transform property and insert the the, the, the variables that i want in fact just break that out into a little function and it's fine yeah well that's what yeah, but it's already done it for you uh, okay. it's already done it so right. glad it works for you i don't i wouldn't necessarily use it for that <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's got its use i've got a, another funny thing about javascript this week as well that that really confused me <laughs> Right. Well, it didn't really confuse me. It just seems that sometimes JavaScript is, they seem to really obfuscate their code in really, they do sort of really weird practices that are kind of mm. very unreadable. Yes, they do. And, I, and I'll give you an example. It's like there's um, a line of code that people use. Right. And it's to tell whether the Google version of jQuery is loaded or not. Right. Yeah, so, so the idea behind this code is you'll put a script tag in that loads Google's jQuery, and if some reason that's gone down, there's a line of code that you can add that adds the script element for a local copy of it, yeah? Yeah. 
what I would do in that case is a conditional. If not window.jQuery, then add the script tag for the local version. But that's not what everyone does. Do they do an or or something like that? Or Yeah. Like you can either do it with an and or an or. So if if you want to check, well, basically you could do like a, 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 a comparison operation. So you could be like uh, window.jQuery or, and then like the second half of that comparison would be the code that adds in the script for jQuery, yeah. the local version. So you, not only do you have to understand that sort of comparisons can stand alone outside of an if statement, but you also have to understand the logic that on an or statement, if the first one is false, then it will check the second one. But if it's true, then it won't bother checking the second yeah. one. You yeah. know, and that's to me, that's quite a lot of steps of understanding. Mm. You know, it's fine for, for us, right? Because we're super geeky and we, <laughs> yeah. we, we revel in that. I remember the of... first time I saw someone use that all thing, because people do it in ActionScript as well. Yeah. I remember where it's like, yeah, the first thing or the second thing. And the first thing can evaluate to zero, null, or empty <laughs> string, or all these different kinds of things. Well, no, yeah. no, some of the, well, no, not necessarily those ones, but it can be zero, undefined, or null. And then, and then, and then in the other bit, and then the other, and it, actually sometimes that thing isn't even a property, it's actually like a function call or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the point. It only calls the function if the first thing yeah. isn't true. Yeah, like the first one's an object, and you're comparing an object against a function call or some randomness, yeah. Yeah, and it is a lot more readable if you break it into an if statement, but... yeah. So I, 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 I mailed Remy. <laughs> I'm like, what right. is wrong with you guys? Why, why do you do stuff like that? It's completely unreadable. And, you know, and I just, I get so frustrated because I'm trying to teach and encourage beginners and yet they encounter this kind of really over-engineered yeah. nonsense. There's worse, um, there's worse things than that in the world of JavaScript as well. Well, I mean, basically Remy came back by saying that it's, um, it's fewer characters than an if statement, you know. <laughs> And and so that's like historically JavaScriptors have absolutely needed to save characters whenever yep. possible. So yep. they'll do things like that to save a few characters here and there. And that's how that's how Remy justifies it and, and he says, Well if you know JavaScript then you'll understand that that's what happens. I mean I I actually although I sort of accept that and I understand why it's become a, a thing, in that particular case I think it saves like two characters. <laughs> yeah, and I just think, come on, can't you just make it a bit easier for beginners? A little bit. Go yeah. on. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, I spend a lot of time teaching beginners now, and uh, yeah, they don't. You know, they struggle with the basic stuff. Yeah. So something like that would just be over their heads. Like I was trying to explain to them this week um, the thing of you know comparisons like greater than, less than, or equals. Yeah. That you can put that not in an if statement. Yeah. Right, and just that idea, it's like blows their minds. And that it resolves to a Boolean that you can yeah. like assign to something. Yeah, exactly. It's just like any time you use a comparison operator, that side of the kind of of the equals is going to be a Boolean. Yeah. Right. That's a great thing to know. It can save you loads of code. Yeah. You don't have to have these if statements where you go, if this thing is greater than this thing, this thing is true. Else. It's false because that you that you don't need that if statement at all because all you're doing is you're actually doing the comparison. Or are you, what about like the ternary operations with the little question mark and the code? Yeah, those are great as well. I mean, I was always historically I was always quite against them just for the same reason that they're not very readable to beginners or even experienced coders. No, once you once you once you use them and you're comfortable with using them, they're 
they're fine. They're, in fact, they're more readable because you can read it, or you can see that it's a value set rather yeah. than... Because the thing about an if statement is that the various, the two kind of places, the if and the else bit, yeah. they can have function calls in there, you can have four lines of code in there, you can have 10, 20 lines of code in there, you can have all kinds of things in there. Whereas those turny, op- turny operators, you know that they're for setting values. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've softened quite a lot on ternary operations just because I've got used to them and I'm lazy and I cheat a lot and do kind of sure. fast, yeah. dirty code quite often. <laughs> yeah. But I do sort of think, though, that you should probably just put in a comment <laughs> just to explain what you're doing. Sure. Maybe a little bit. No, I, you don't. That You're assuming... I don't know what kind of developers you're working with, but you're assuming that people don't know how to program. <laughs> Really, and it's like okay, if you're if you're teaching beginners, yeah, but yeah. if it's in any kind of professional setting, people should really know this stuff, or they should be prepared to just go. Oh, I've never seen that before. I'll look it up, because it's not. This isn't rocket science. Here. This isn't even computer science. Really, it's just very, very. It's intermediate. I would say intermediate coding practices. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's probably the last thing you learn. Really, no way. Because the last thing you learn is things like design patterns. Now, I would say, like, you shouldn't expose beginners to design patterns because they don't even know what they're for. Yeah, I would, I would argue that most programmers don't know what they're for either. But, um, but I think we should, we're probably running out of time. We should probably get to this interview, right? Oh, we, should, um, we should mention that this interview's been edited by Jack Menhorn. So Jack's going to give it a go this time. We'll see how that works out. But um, he's a sound designer and musician. JackMenhorn.com. There you go. Yep. Go check it out. He's the guy who did the original things Ian has learned. Oh, are we going to do one of those today? No, we haven't got time. Okay, fair enough. Next time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I caught up with uh, Josh. He's based in Seattle. Uh, I did a Skype call at some ridiculous time <laughs> for him. I think it was like 8 a.m. for him on a Sunday. Um, but, yeah, I started off by asking him uh, how he got into all of this creative coding. As an undergrad, I studied cognitive science, and I took a few programming courses, but I I didn't really like it very much until my senior year when, sort of as a lark, I did a sculpture class. In the sculpture class, I very quickly realized that I I wanted to uh, make reactive spaces. Like, I was just really fascinated by that. Everyone said, well, there's really no way to do that unless you learn some electronics and some programming. In 1998, making a reactive space and, and using computer vision was actually really, really hard. You know, it's it's not like today where you can just go download open frameworks and get your webcam and, and be doing something. It's, uh, yeah, it's a bit more, it was a bit more of an undertaking. But that was really the start of me writing code, you know, and, and, and being interested in electronics. And then I got into Flash very quickly, got into doing things on the web, did a really wide, bizarre range of things. I worked with Adobe for a while. And, and then after a while of kind of doing more businessy oriented stuff, kind of came back around to what I was originally interested in, which is interaction and sort of the aesthetics of, of environments and how people can react to them. So the open frameworks yeah. and the Arduino and, and all the things that you can do with processing in Cinder, really. Yeah. So so like, is, am I right in thinking that in sort of like the a few years ago, you were working more in industry, like in doing web stuff, like I guess we all were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was doing, I did some Flash games. I did some fairly, I mean, I 
at one point was doing a lot of .NET and SQL Server stuff, which I, I don't really know how I made it through that. But for some reason at the time, I really enjoyed it. I was like, I think because it, it seemed like the real thing to be doing, you know? It was kind of yeah. like, there's like this programmer macho, you know, where I thought that that was really, really hardcore and fun. So from that to where you are now, I mean, I guess now what do you spend most of your time doing? I, I spent a lot of my time doing big touch screens and doing big projections, um, a lot of which were, were a bit, to be honest, were a bit dull. So last year I went back to school because I've always been really interested in small handheld things and in electronics and small devices, an intangible interaction. So I, I went back to school to a place called CIID, which is in Copenhagen, and um, did a lot of research and learning about making tangible objects and, and making... Um, devices, essentially, how to prototype them, how to test them, and then, you know, how to prepare things for production. So was that was that like a master's degree or something yep, like that yep. you were studying? Yeah. yeah. And, and what made you go to, to Copenhagen? You know, it was it was the school. They're, they're really focused on what they would call human-centered design. So it's a lot of doing user testing, a lot of doing user research. It comes from Ivrea, and there was a place in the late 90s and early 2000s called the Ivrea Institute of Interaction, Ivrea Institute, which is where the Arduino came from and a lot of where processing really matured as a platform for artists and designers. So Massimo Banzi and Casey Rees and Ben Fry all taught there. And then the Italian government stopped funding it, so the people who were sort of the administrative core of the school all went up to Copenhagen. On a long-term basis or just like they do every, to visit? They do everything in these two- and three-week workshops. So you don't have like a standard semester or classes. You just have two-week-long, really intense workshop on one thing in particular, be it... Sounds good to me. Yeah, I mean, it worked for me. It's, I mean, it's aimed at people who are a little bit... who already know the basics of what they're doing, you know? So you're yeah. already an established graphic designer or electrical engineer or industrial designer, and then you come there and they really teach you how to hone your skills a little bit more towards doing human-centered design and interaction design with a aim towards products more than experiences. I mean, I know how, um, I mean, I certainly feel like those sort of intense workshops are a lot better way to learn this kind of thing. I agree. I, I just find if you learn like once a week or something, you're just going to forget it all by the next week. Yeah. And that was, you do like three and four day long JavaScript workshops, right? Well, I'd like to do longer ones. They're, they're only two days at the moment. Okay. I find that it's kind of difficult to get people on the longer ones maybe i'll maybe i'll just do it maybe i'll just do a three-day one and see what happens you just need a good weekend you know when somebody's got like the monday or the friday off or something all right i'll do that yeah. this year three-day javascript workshop so how did you find i mean copenhagen is um i've been through there a couple of times not a lot of daylight is there no well i mean <laughs> in the summer there is right. when the sun's actually out yeah the sun comes up at like 2 30 or 3 a.m but yeah it's really cloudy and it's it was a bit bizarre when you cram an entire master's degree in one calendar year. Yeah. Um, you don't really leave you the studio never very <laughs> much. Yes, it didn't really matter, you know? <laughs> like, people would ask me about Copenhagen, and it's like, like oh, I really don't know, don't know. but... Never you know, saw any of it. I can tell you all about our laser cutter, you know, but I had no idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really into Denmark at the moment. Well, I had a very good friend who was Danish. He was in my band when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And he was super cool. But just recently, I've been getting into The Killing, which is a brilliant 
thriller. Have you seen it? Yeah. Well, uh, I've seen, so, you know, they, they're remaking it in the U.S. Yeah. So I've seen one of those. Weird. Yeah. They've, I, they've got something, the Danish cinema, they do unnerving in a way that, you know, like, I, I really like Lars von Trier and I really like a lot of the Dogma movies that came out in the mid-90s. And they do unnerving in, in a way that when you're there and you kind of look around at just sort of how bubbly and, you know, I mean, reserved, Scandinavian reserved, but just generally happy and content they are. I don't know yeah. where it comes from. You know, I don't, I don't know. Like all this darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's quite bizarre. <laughs> anyway, I'm digressing really badly. Let's talk about your writing. I thought it was quite funny because um, I found you on Lanyard. You know the conference website thing? Have you seen that? Lanyard.com? No. no, no. Oh, it's quite cool. But you're on there and um, it listed one of your books, which was the Flex Cookbook. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was really amusing that you wrote a Flex book. How did that happen? Were you doing a lot of Flex at the time? I was doing a huge amount of Flex. That was actually what I was doing when I was working with Adobe, working with Flex and Java and, and doing training and building Flex applications that I'm not sure how this works, but apparently if you're a big enough company, you can essentially hire Adobe to build your Flex application. Or you yeah, could... Yeah, it's, it's Adobe Consulting, yeah, isn't it? Yep. So back in the day. But yeah, that was actually... I spent a lot of time doing a lot of Flex work, which it, it was interesting because I really had no interest in it. And someone said, well, just give this a try and see how you like it. I think this was in 2004, 2005, when, when it was Flex 1.0, which was, yeah. you know, it had its own server and you had to run all the code. It was like a cold fusion model and it was really bizarre. Yeah. And I didn't really like it except how easy it made building businessy applications. And very, very few people were doing it and it suddenly became incredibly popular. And I wound up working for a while with Joey Lott. Genius. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, he was like the Flash guy. You know, we, we got along really well and I was doing a lot of blogging at the time and he had someone offer him a book that he didn't really want to do because I'm sure he was writing three other books at the same time and he <laughs> said, well, I can't do it but I know a guy who would be interested in doing it and so he sort of passed it along to me and that was, those were the, the first, yeah, the first three books I wrote were all about Flex and action scripts. Sure. But yeah, I, I used to do a huge amount of Flex. It's very bizarre to have spent a lot of time learning and talking about and thinking about and working with something that is, you know, is on its way out. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, but you're, I mean, I feel like you've gone to doing the JavaScript stuff a lot. And that's, that's like the, the really natural extension. I feel like that part of myself, you know, because I'm not doing very much web stuff anymore. That part of myself is just sort of fading into the past. It's, it's so... Yeah. It's so odd. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, the JavaScript stuff, I guess that's probably what I'm well known for because that's probably what I promote most of the time is the training. And the rest of the time I do my own stuff, which is, well, I teach a lot of processing and, and my own projects. My recent projects have been in open frameworks. Mm. So I'm always interested when people were in those sort of corporate enterprisey sort of world so mm -hmm. i'm guessing that's where you were right doing yeah. flex stuff yeah so i mean how did you get into that you said before you were in copenhagen that that you were doing a lot of the large-scale installation works was that all corporate stuff as well or was that more personal art projects those were more corporate but they were mm. beginning to lean towards being more art projects. So I think it's become one of the, it's become one of those things where when you're a large corporation and you're building up some sort of identity for a space or a building, particularly building lobbies, it seems like big companies want 
a building lobby that's fancy, that tells people that they get technology, that they're interactive, that they're responsive, that I don't know, that they have a lot of money. <laughs> so we did a few of those. And to be honest, it was one of the things that made me really want to go back to school was that the company had such tight control over the design. Really, what we ended up making was really large, expensive flash microsites. <laughs> Remember back in the day when you would have a little microsite and it would have everyone's picture and it would sort of swirl around and you could find out a little bit more about the company. Um, I mean, the technical challenges were immense. So I, I worked uh, for about six months, 2010, on a project for Kaiser Permanente um, for their building lobby in Washington, D.C. that had a 10-meter touch wall on it. It was incredibly difficult to do, and I'm really proud of a lot of the things that we did. Uh, I was working with a guy named Hai Wen, who's one of the principals of Cinder, and that we got it done was, was amazing, but at the end of the day, it was essentially a, an interactive television that you could watch <laughs> ads about how great Kaiser Permanente is yeah. on it. It was, it was A, it was an honor to work on it, but B, it, it made me realize that I... I wasn't that fascinated with that stuff. Going into doing those things, I think, was sort of the natural... You know, if you if you come from an interactive background, you can go towards doing more business stuff. Um, if, you know, if you're, if you're going to do programming things that are a little bit more creative, you can go towards doing, I feel like, things that are just displays or things that are kind of like experiences, you know, something that's that's more like data-driven or something that's more kind of eye-grabbing. Yeah, the, the eye-grabbing thing, you can... It used to be all done online, and it used to sort of be these teasers. You would, you know, there was sort of like a like a hierarchy of things and difficulty you could get into. So flash banner ads, and then you would sort of move on to the microsites. And I feel like the large projection and a lot of the things that are doing uh, people are doing with projection mapping is it's it's an extension of the same thing. It's something to grab someone's attention and yeah give them a little bit of the brand experience and yeah they're they're interesting and they're technically incredibly challenging just it wasn't quite what i wanted to be doing at the time so so then you went to, to copenhagen and, and so i mean did they give you a grant or anything i mean how did you did you pay your own way to go there or? well the school is mostly funded by the danish government and then right. by the large danish company so nova nordisk and maersk um yeah. and then intel bizarrely uh, <laughs> does a lot of projects with them um so it's quite cheap. Yeah, so, so now you're back in America. Where, where are you based? On the West Coast? Yep, I'm in Seattle. Oh, Seattle. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've never been. I really like this part of the U.S. It's, um, it's kind of drizzly and grim <laughs> in the winter, but you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure it wouldn't bother you too much. The, in the summers, it's, it's really beautiful. So, so your new, um, the new version of programming interactivity is like, on the verge of coming out, right? Mm -hmm. So do you want to just maybe explain what the book's about to start with? The, the book is a guide to some different tools for interaction design that are all programming-based. So it's a hardware platform. Arduino and then introduction to two different programming platforms that you can use. So Open Frameworks, which is based on C++, and Processing, which is based on Java. So I go through the basics of what they are, how they work, and then get into some different themes. So using computer vision, building uh, uh, environmentally aware applications or tools using Arduino and processing, uh, get into a little bit of how open frameworks can be run on the iPhone and Android and a little bit of the same about processing on Android. Hopefully, my, my hope for it is that it's really something that as a designer or as an artist, you could pick up 
and learn the basics of what you need and then go to the thing that you're really fascinated in. Yeah. So if you're really fascinated by you really want to build something that you can leverage GPS and make a bunch of LEDs blink, that this book would walk <laughs> you through essentially how to do that. Sure, sure. Um, Cause it's a bunch of small tutorials uh, that are topically organized. And uh, it's, it's kind of aimed at people who can program already though, isn't it? No. No, the first six chapters are very. It's an introduction to code. Okay. Yeah, so that's why that's part of why the book is almost eight hundred pages long, <laughs> is because the, the first few hundred are, are really an introduction. I mean, you have to be quite self motivated to learn how to code, yeah. and you know, there's a lot of things that I think people just will have to figure out on their own. Right. But. Um, I very consciously wanted to make sure that the first three or four chapters got you through how to install everything mm. and an introduction to all the stuff that you were going to see in the book, how all the different language constructs worked, what the differences between the different platforms were and little gotchas that I think people run into. I'm not sure if it's still the case, but at the time it was certainly the, the only book that had anything about open frameworks in. Is, it, yeah. is that still true? You know, um, there's a Japanese book that has some open framework stuff in it. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, Zach Lieberman is writing one of those thin make books, you know. So there's, oh. the, yeah, there's, I, I'm not remembering the title, but there's one for processing yeah. and one for Arduino. There's an Arduino one, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. So he's going to do one of those, well, but for, good. for the moment, I, it is. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think that's the number one reason people bought it actually it was, yeah. was i mean i i certainly got a copy of it to, to help me when i was starting open frameworks yeah but i have to admit you know i think by then i was using 007 anyway so it was kind of out of date and also like the thing with open frameworks is just setting up a c++ editing environment just setting up the compiler and all that so it just never works does it really yeah and i've been to i've been to um workshops with Theo and Kyle and and both times something's just gone wrong and it isn't compiling they'll be like oh that's weird oh and then they just try something and it works and they'll be like oh yeah just try this <laughs> you know so it's like I don't really know how you can write a book when there's that's gonna help with all of those things it's almost impossible isn't it yeah yeah the the I mean I've done some workshops as well and I am a little bit ambivalent about OSX but it is one of the yeah. few environments where you say look just get Xcode and it'll all work. And with Windows, it's harder. And then with Linux, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Because you just never know what's gonna, how someone's system is going to have some little system variable configured that will break everything, you know? Well, it was the same with Flex. I used to teach um, Paper Vision and Flash games coding. It was all done with Flex Builder or Flash Builder. And yeah. I'd always have the same stuff. It just, you know, be a weirdness with their workspace or just something. I'd spend like an hour just screwing around with people's setups before I could even do anything. So that was so frustrating. It's quite nice with JavaScript, just not having to worry. And I guess it's, um, I'm teaching processing as well. And that's kind of easy too. I'd, I was just really hoping for tips on how to you know how to avoid those awkward setup issues and these weird obscure errors that don't really help you yeah you know the the biggest thing that i think and this is purely my personal preference and and i should have written this into the book but i was trying to stick more to the the of approach which those guys really embrace open source anything over a closed source option but 
If you're on Windows, setting something, setting up a C++ development environment using the Visual Studio family, so whether that's um, the the light C++ builder that they have or the big heavy Visual Studio 2010, it's way less painful than doing it in code blocks. And those right. guys always tell everyone to use code blocks and you know the problem with code blocks is that it has to it has to compile everything through a, you know a virtual machine. You have to use Sigwin and cuz GCC doesn't run natively and it, it it's just it's painful and it and that's the source of almost all of the really bizarre inscrutable Windows errors that I've come across, which is hard for me cuz I barely know Windows anyway. So when you're running yeah. around a workshop I think my favorite was I was in Chile and everyone was on Windows or Linux and I had stupidly agreed to teach the workshop in Spanish, which I speak fairly well, but like doing a technical workshop in Spanish. And then these guys were just having all these nightmarish problems and like I'm trying to explain to them what's going on and everything on their machines is in Spanish. So like a lot of the, you know, I couldn't find familiar. <laughs> it, it, yeah, that just sounds like a nightmare. But anyway, there's the new version. So if you've updated that, presumably for... Um, OF007, yeah. Or? Yeah, yeah. I've updated everything for processing 1.5, mm. uh, the 1.0 release of Arduino, and then the 007 release of Open Frameworks. And the other thing that, that I did this time is I'm going to put all of the code up on GitHub. So that was one of the big complaints that everyone had last time was that I didn't have code downloads and I never got them together and then my computer died. This time it's all going up on GitHub. So hopefully as things change in yeah. processing, you know, especially for the processing 2.0 release that's coming out, yeah. I want to make sure that everything is, is up to date and stays up to date. And putting that in public is one of the best ways to do that. You mentioned you're writing a book with Robert about Cinder. Yeah, it's going to be about computer vision and using the Connect. So it's actually going to be a mm. small, thin book, you know, yeah. in the make Arduino, make processing size. Tentatively, we're just calling it Exploring Cinder because there's going to be a series of books about using Cinder. Ours is essentially me doing technical writing and then Robert making some really beautiful stuff. And it's going to be very example driven more than being like a step-by-step -step introduction to C++ and to Cinder. But it's really going to be more advanced stuff in Cinder and then Robert just being a genius and me sort of riding on his coattails. <laughs> yeah, I should try that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so one project of yours that I particularly loved last year was your Seat Racer. Perhaps you could just explain what that's all about. I got invited by uh, Philip Fischnis of Creative Applications to a workshop that he was having in Barcelona. And so they got 12 people from all over the EU, which I, I was at the time, to come in and, and work for one day on some sort of small project of some sort. We had no idea what we were going to do. Everyone just brought some gear. Two guys, Martin and Philip of Undef, so it's uh, their little design group in Switzerland. They brought a thermal printer and I brought a tiny projector and we all looked at each other as we were all kind of laying out gear on the table and they said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a Pico projector. I said, is that a thermal printer? And they said, yeah. And I said, let's all, let's all go over in a corner and see what we can come up with. So we made a racing game where you print the course on thermal paper 
and we projected the car using the little Pico projector and then controlled it using standard Sony PS2 game controller. The course is just drawn onto the paper and then you just sort of drive the car around it and your score is the length of your receipt you get so the better you do the longer your receipt is so so the um the the course like the sides of the road they're printed on the paper yeah and presumably like the little car and the scores and stuff are projected on top of them yeah uh well you also get your score printed at the end (laughs) yeah so it's a little souvenir like a 20 foot like receipt yeah you take (laughs) yeah you take home your score but it was funny because it was like a two-hour project and it's 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 something that I learned a lot after being in, you know, the sort of test-driven, proper development, businessy programming world for a long time. Last year was just a reminder of how good it is creatively to be forced to do something in an hour or two. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just do things when you're under the gun that I, I don't know. I just it, it was very, very freeing. And that was a great example of it because we worked on that for about two or three hours total. Was was that done with processing or how did you make that? No, we wrote it all in open frameworks. And actually, yeah. if anyone's interested, the code is up on GitHub. I think I have a, a fork of it in my GitHub account. Do you need like special drivers for the printer or anything like that? Or was you just sending serial data out? Yeah, it just communicates over serial. So brilliant. Yeah, I've been trying to remake it with the uh, Adafruit sells a thermal printer. Oh yeah. Now for about fifty dollars, and I've been trying to remake it with that, but it's a little bit slower than the larger commercial ones. It doesn't really. It's got to be work. fast, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's otherwise, really you're run. not wasting loads of paper for no reason. <laughs> That was the number one comment that we got, was this is very environmentally unfriendly. I thought, wow. I, I like is... how on the project page you were like, yeah, it's just uh, it's ecologically unsound, just like a real car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of tenuous, but, you know, it's, it's, still, it's still a fun game, so I, I think you're, you can be forgiven for that. There's a, yeah. lot, more, a lot less uh, environmentally friendly sports, aren't there? Yeah. So um, what's coming up for you? Well, uh, I've got a couple things that I'm working on. So my final project at CIID was something that I called the Moo Tagger, which was me tearing apart a mouse sensor and slapping it on the bottom of a spray paint can so that you could, as you were tagging a wall, um, you could record the vector data of what you were doing. So you could have a record of all the gestures that you made as you were as you were tagging a wall and so uh, the device itself is just a mouse sensor pointed at the wall and then an SD card that records everything and it records it in a file format that's called graffiti markup language that a guy named Evan Roth invented and I know Theo Watson and a bunch of other people have done work with so uh, I'm going to be building the actual board, so like a proper printed circuit board, and I think selling them either through SparkFund potentially or through my own website. Um, so anybody can grab one and, uh, and play around with it. It's, but it works quite well for, as a drawing tool. And I think that was the thing that I was really excited yeah. about was seeing what people do with open frameworks and processing to make creative tools for other people, for other artists is, I I just absolutely love that. And I really want to do more of that. And I think now that I know a $1.50 mouse sensor and a laser 
can enable you to write without needing a camera and a computer vision setup. I'm I'm really into that. The other thing I'm really interested in doing more of this year is is now that you can put open frameworks on anything that's Linuxy and you know with some monkeying around have it work. There's all these new boards coming out. There's the Panda board, which is um, it's a ARM nine, so it's the same thing that's in my Samsung Galaxy phone here. Um, but it's you know one hundred and seventy dollars, um, but runs runs Open Frameworks fine. Um, yeah. And then Gumsticks and all these other little boards. I'm really excited about the things that it's getting easy to do in embedded computing or getting easier. So I have started playing around with taking my Panda board, putting open frameworks on it, and then plugging my Connect into it. So is a Panda board a bit like a Raspberry Pi, just a little mini computer on a card? Uh, well, it's a, the Raspberry Pi is really intriguing because it's so small. A Panda board yeah. is substantially larger than a Raspberry okay. Pi. Yeah, sure. it's, um, it's about the size of your hand. But it runs at five volts. You can plug a battery into it, and it'll run for a while. It's really light. You know, there's all it's like incredible potential for truly mobile computing, um, where you can just kind of roll your own. And and uh, from the perspective of making drawing tools or making creative tools for people, completely untethering them from their laptop and you know from needing to be plugged into something big is uh is really exciting so sure. um, i've got a couple ideas for that that uh, hopefully will come to fruition thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you so much for having me on thank you josh for the interview it was great we learned yes. a lot about what you've kind of done with your career and i found it really interesting i particularly like you know receipt racer is my absolute favorite project ever i think that's so cool it just goes to show as well that sometimes projects can be really fast, right? Mm. And they're often the most enjoyable and often the most enjoyed by others as well. Yeah, it's true. I kind of like ideas that work in kind of 50 lines of code as well. Yeah. Like clever mashups or clever like little toys that where it's really a, a conceptual thing. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of things, like a lot of, you know, like you can do kind of particle demos in like five lines and you can do, do you know what I mean? Like not everything has to be like 4,000 lines of code to, to do something cool. We did um, uh, 12 days of Creative JS over Christmas where we posted right. like a mini tutorial every day on creativejs.com. And the last day I did uh, a 3D pixel renderer in Canvas and that was right. only like... I don't know, 20 lines of code or something. Sure. So, you know, like the formula for converting 3D into 2D is just a couple of lines. Yeah. Um, and then we had a pixel rendering system for Canvas from a few days earlier. Just put them together and got nice little 3D pixel shapes flying Was around. Was it like, like voxels? No. No, it wasn't really voxels, just more like single pixels that didn't, you know, so each point in space was represented by a, a 2D pixel in the Canvas. Right, I see. Yeah. So, but check it out. It's kind of fun. Same sort of stuff as, you know, you could do in Flash, of course. Although I do find pixel manipulation in Canvas pretty fast. That's kind of what it's good at, though, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's astonishing, really, how quick JavaScript is at doing that sort of pixel stuff because there's a lot of data, right? Hey, not as fast as not as fast as fast Flash, though. Did you see that blog post? Oh, that my obnoxious God. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's find that. That was hilarious. What was it called? Um, got to find it. thing is, that guy... He works on the. Comp- He's obviously a very smart guy. He works on the Flash compiler, and he obviously knows a lot about engineering and stuff. But he knows less about kind of how you present yourself and your your ideas online. Oh, I need to find it now. 
there were some lines that were just classic, like... Uh, oh, anyway, look, come on, let's not waste our time. Come on, we're not professional trolls, Sam, come on. Yeah, we are. As much as we say, well... We're just saying yeah, okay, how fun it is. I know, but come on, let's let's... Let's stick to positive things. I, I liked how quickly Adobe just completely disowned it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's the V8 myth why JavaScript is not a worthy competitor. You'll put the link in, won't you, Ian? No, I don't do links anymore. Oh, no on. one, no one is, no one has ever said, "Oh, where have the links gone?" I know because ever. no one's going to say it, are they? They're just going to be like, "Oh, no links. Oh, that's lame." That's because they saw that I wrote a message saying, "Hey, I'm crowdsourcing the links," because that means that if anyone complains, so there's no link. I go, well, wh- why didn't you co- contribute by putting That's in the such link? a cop-out, the crowdsourcing the links. It's not. Yeah, it's terrible. Look, come on, life is short and time is short. We want to hear about whether you miss the links or not, so um, tell us, one way or another. If you don't care there's no links, tell us. If you care that there's no links, tell us too. If you've got time to compile our links, definitely get in touch. Yeah, That's we would love to have another team member whose job it is to listen to the episodes and make the links that would make my day uh, one benefit from that of course is that you'd get early access to all the podcasts oh you would yeah yeah and your name on the creativecoding.com <laughs> website <laughs> creativecodingpodcast.com oh yeah sorry let's yeah. not send people the wrong way no let's not do that so um what else anything else you wanted to talk about um Let's just do what we've been doing and what we've got coming up, I guess. Oh, yeah, okay. What have you been doing, what you've got coming um, up? You've been doing this project. What's what's next for you? I've been doing this project. I went along to Unity 3D, the Unity 3 London user group. Oh, yeah. While I was up in London last week. Was it good? Yeah, it was really good. They're a really enthusiastic bunch and they get a really good turnout. They get like 40 or 50 people cool. showing up, which is cool. And a real mix of like professionals and students. And, and what were the different... presentations about? Um, it was mostly about people's entries for Flash in a Flash, which was, I think that was what it was called. It was a competition that yeah. Unity Technologies ran to kind of test the Flash exporter. And they gave them about two weeks over Christmas to do yeah. it. But still, they put the, the Unity uh, community put so much work into some of the entries. Amazing. They're, they're um, a great community, actually, aren't they? Yeah, I particularly want to shout out um, a few guys from the London one, like Quick Fingers, who is a really talented... An incredibly talented Unity developer. How how can we find him? Um, he's at quick fing- at quick fingers on Twitter. Yeah, but his stuff is just awesome. And Jasper Stocker, who organises them, it's one of the organisers uh, of the meetup, has also got done some awesome work. And... I, I remember him a couple of years ago from the Flash on the Beach elevator pitch. Yes, yeah, I think that was when he was kind of first getting into Unity, and he's done some a really great projects since. Yeah, there was a, a Unity meetup the same night in Brighton. <laughs> As, right. Well, you know, I'm I'm run Dot Brighton. Although I say I run it, I'm actually <laughs> just officially the manager. But I've been yeah. so busy this year. I, uh, thankfully, uh, Nicola has been running it mostly. Is now what is Nicola on Twitter? Um, funny word. Timorous Beastie. Yes, because she helped me out massively this week. Oh, with the Arabic text. Oh in, my god. In Flash, and she knows a lot about it, and and I know how to do it now. So it's cool. Such a nightmare, all that it's, stuff. Do you know what? It's not once you know how to do it, it's not yeah. that bad. And actually, okay. the TFL text layout framework text field TLF. that comes with, yeah, TFL Transport for London. No, <laughs> the text layout framework, the TLF text field that comes with Flash CS5 is actually pretty decent and does the thing that you expect it to do. So, well, my only experience with TLF 
is that it was horrible and it didn't do what I wanted it to do and it was really annoying. Well, that was my experience at first, but then once <laughs> I learnt the what buttons you're supposed to click in Flash, it was it was fine. There is only one problem where if you kind of every so often it you make one and you select certain settings and it throws like a an incompatible override error. Yeah. And so then you have to delete that text field and just copy and paste <laughs> one of your old text fields and change the properties, but that I think that's I think the problem with that though is that I've got one version of the components in the Flex compiler that I'm using in Flash Developer and then a different one in Flash CS5. But yeah, that doesn't sound like a minefield at all. That sounds really straightforward <laughs> <laughs> and not at all a massive pain. Okay, at least great. it at least it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So what's coming up for you? Let's think. Oh, I've got some exciting news actually. I'm going to yeah? be I'm going to be speaking at um, the Flash Gaming Summit in San Francisco in March. Oh, cool. So that's cool. And actually, they're not cool, are they? They are cool. They're not cool. They're cool to me. Oh, they just like, they don't cover any of your expenses. They're, and then they well, have they're, covering, of... they're covering my expenses. So okay, well, that's, cool. that's good then, as long as you're getting covered. Yeah, I'm very excited to be doing that. I'm very happy. Along with um, other guests we've had, Ryan Henson Creighton is going to be Oh, cool. And Lee Brimlow, so yeah. lots of the uh, lots of uh, Creative Coding Podcast alumni. Lo- Al- alumni? Alumni? Yeah, alumnus is. Alum- uh, I'm sure it's. I'm sure that's right. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, alumni. <laughs> cool. That sounds good. But what about you? What have I got? I've got loads coming up actually. Um, just sorting out my next load of creative JS workshops, including my new beginner workshop. I'm just trying to sort out dates at the moment. Did I mention that I've been wrangling with WordPress this week? Yes, I saw it on Twitter. But oh no. yeah. I probably it's probably not creative enough to talk about here, but I've become a real WordPress master this week, and I've got like a really clever system for setting up my training workshops. And what else? I've got a few conferences coming up, I think. FITC Amsterdam. Are you going to that? Uh, I'm not. When is uh, it? That's the end of February. Yeah, is it's it? right after my birthday. In fact, the what's, first day is my birthday. What's I'm, the date of it? it? Like the Sunday with the training on is 26th, which is my birthday, but I'm not going right. until Monday night. And I'm going to do like two presentations on Tuesday. I'm going to do the first presentation, which is like a 90 minute JavaScript session. Right. And then in the afternoon, I'm interviewing Mr. Do Ricardo Cabello, and that's going to be recorded and for this podcast. Cool. Uh, sure, I've got loads of other stuff happening that I should probably mention, but I can't remember any of it. A few conferences. I'm sure we'll cover it <laughs> in the next podcast. Yeah, and have a good time at FITC. Oh yeah, it's not till the end of February. I'm sure we'll do another one before then. We should do, right? It's been yeah. it's been ages. No, we will. We've been rubbish. Yeah, we will do another one. All right, cool. Cool. Two weeks. Okay. Thank you for listening, and we will. We won't see you again. You'll hear us again. <laughs> You'll hear from us shortly. <laughs> Check us out again in two weeks on the CreativeCodingPodcast.com. They're all official and stuff. Yeah, that was good. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye. Bye.